How Diversity and Equity Came to Dominate Education Politics, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Republican governors like Ron DeSantis have elevated critiques about racial and gender politics in schools and universities to the center of American politics, quickly transforming both K-12 and higher education policy debates. What are schools and universities actually doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion and their curriculums? And why have critiques of critical race theory and educators gained such political power now? This week, I talked to Carson Bird of the University of Michigan about his book, Behind the Diversity Numbers. He finds that universities are not achieving racial equality, but have still become the place for conservatives to react against cultural change. I also talked to Jonathan Collins of Brown University about his new paper, They Only Hate the Term. He finds that critical race theory has become an effective bogeyman despite wide public support for teaching about racism in public schools. Both reflect on how these debates quickly became the center of our culture wars and merged K-12 and university politics. Let's start with the higher education controversy, where Carson Bird has been studying what universities are actually up to. So your, your latest uh, book uh, critiques university strategies uh, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, area. So tell us what universities are actually doing here and why it's not living up to the bill. Sure. So, um, you know, we see a lot of, of discussions about diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in higher ed. And obviously, politically, we see a lot of critiques of it. Um, but one of the, the the biggest impediments is kind of underestimating how much needs to be done on a college campus to uh, overcome different obstacles to uh, student success, for example. Um, so some of this is like resulting in underfunding and understaffing, which is a big issue. Um, so not actually committing the necessary resources and, and, and personnel to uh, achieving some of these big aims. Um, and others are, uh, you know, not thinking big enough, right, uh, where they might just have um, a series of celebratory event, uh, events about different kinds of moments in time or for different communities. And while these are really important, um, they don't do the full job, right? Um, so while many universities have kind of improved what they do to increase access and success among students uh, when they arrive, um, they... Uh, you know, they're not always consistent. Um, and there's always a constant need for additional programming and support services and adjustments that haven't been done before. So uh, a lot of the critique that, you know, my book uh, and my work in general kind of put out there is that we need to be attentive to the details and be open to more changes, but um, just, uh, you know, more serious reflections about where we are and where we need to go. Um, and that's not to say that universities aren't doing, you know, a lot of things, but it, it's just a, it's been inconsistent, if you will. Um, but there's also this really interesting kind of uh, a, a series of, of efforts where people are trying to do more performative, looking good uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work and not actually doing substantively better, right? And so Sarah Ahmed, uh, JT Thomas, and, and many other scholars have kind of pointed this out, where people get really involved in what the appearance of DEI efforts look like, and not actually what the changes might be, you know, the changes or lack of changes that are going on behind this work look like. So it's almost like PR and image management 
than substantive change on campuses. So those are some of the, the general critiques that, you know, things are underfunded and, and understaffed. Um, they're not thinking big enough um, or they're mainly focused on performance or a combination thereof. So this builds on your uh, previous work tracking the student experience uh, in elite uh, campuses. Um, what what did you you find uh, there, and how much is kind of specific to those uh, elite campuses, um, and how much is kind of carrying over to the wider university sector? Right, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, DEI programming is is aimed at student at, at students um, in the broader campus community, so. Um, it has a lot of touch points. Some of it's curricular, some of it's co-curricular, right? Uh, the celebratory events or speakers, things like that. Um, but then you can have some more uh, integrated and, and holistic approaches like intergroup dialogues. And here they have the intergroup relations program at the University of Michigan that is curricular and co-curricular uh, set of academic and, and uh, engagement activities for students. So there's a lot more going on. Um, so it can vary uh, across campuses and in, in a wide range. And, um, you know, some of these elite campuses, you know, highly selective, well-resourced universities um, have been seen as like the leaders in some ways. Right. Um, and that's because they've been in the spotlight for not having a very diverse uh, set of students and faculty, um, given their histories and, and, and everything. Um, and so this has kind of led them up, uh, set them up to be mimicked in some ways, right, um, by other institutions like, well, if Harvard is doing this, if Grinnell is doing this, if Davidson's doing this, et cetera, um, then it must be good. And sometimes they will take some of these programs and approaches and not step back and say, is this really what we need for our campus? Are we having some of the same issues that are occurring at these other campuses? Um in, and even if they are, there's still adjustments that need to be made, right? Like there's different contexts for uh, of, uh, institutions that need to be fully grasped. Um, and sometimes people don't do that. And, you know, I mentioned the intergroup dialogues, right? Like those are really powerful um, programming for students to kind of, you know, engage each other from different perspectives on some really contentious issues, you know, racism being one of them, for example. Um but sometimes people will say, well, we don't need it to be as longitudinal as the way some of these programs are set up. We just need to have a conversation or two. And really that completely undercuts the purpose and the effectiveness of some of these programs to help students develop critical thinking, be able to engage around some of these issues in the world, different kinds of policies and politics, right? Um, and so again, like taking these programs and just kind of automatically dropping them on a campus or curtailing them without understanding the the full components of them can have some deleterious effects. Um, but also, and this is a, this is a point that people are finally, finally acknowledging in some ways uh, a little bit more broadly, um, just because something is identified as elite doesn't necessarily uh, mean that, uh, you know, that it's elite in terms of being a leader, right? It, it's more of a status marker and one thing in regards to diversity programming that's really big is uh, recognizing that other universities that might not have this elite label are doing great work as well. And maybe we should be turning to them to seeing how um, they're uh, really you know, successfully uh, increasing diversity and success among marginalized, minoritized communities. 
and how really um, the leaders look very different from the ones that we've always seen as being elite. Right. So there's there's kinds of differentiations there are really important. Um, but acknowledging that there's a lot of campuses and universities across the country that have been doing really good work and being uh, much more supportive of different communities than, you know, the IVs or the public IVs or what have you that are always kind of seen as the leaders and the best in that regard. So how are universities uh, measuring their uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, efforts? Um, is this just a case of, of counting uh, who's in what uh, roles and then uh, maybe surveys for kind of attitudinal type measures? And is there kind of any better way uh, to evaluate the success? So the, the short and sweet answer is there's a multitude of ways that people can, can measure the components of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And again, they're not always consistent. Um, some of the most common ones that we think of is uh, student and faculty representation. How many you know, students uh, are identified as black or Latino on, on campus? What percentage of those students uh, of students are identified with those groups, right? Those are, those are some of the most common measurements. Um, but it also uh, has, the changes also reflect a, a difference in understanding what accountability in the legal context of different institutions are, right? In the state of, uh, of Michigan, it's an affirmative action banned state. So what exactly is measured and why has a different context than in the Commonwealth of Virginia that is not an affirmative action banned state, right? Um, so these measurements have a very sociopolitical context um, that allows for institutions to do certain things or not, or have responsibilities and accountability to do that. Um, some of these measurements are retention rates, right? Uh, to understand how successful a campus is at supporting students from different backgrounds. Uh, graduation rates, four and six years, right? Like sometimes we say, hey, it'd be great uh, if all of our students graduated in four years, but we know that that doesn't always happen. And sometimes it's not just about students having to work more because they come from low income backgrounds or they have other family responsibilities. Sometimes we haven't actually recognized that our programs aren't set up for students to effectively graduate in four years, that they might have to take a fifth year or maybe a sixth year if there's certain kinds of internship requirements. Or if uh, you look at some of the programs that are uh, in the College of Engineering here and at other institutions, those are actually a little bit more uh, lengthy programs than, than perhaps some of these measures are, are out there. So it's kind of hard sometimes to see exactly what is going on. Um, and as you alluded to, there's also survey measures, right, about student experiences and everyday life with campus climates and, and engagement. Um, much less so, we collect data that is more qualitative and open-ended to find out about people's experiences and um, so there's a lot of data that's out there, but sometimes um, and oftentimes it's inconsistent or, or um, illy connected to or less connected to um, each other so that we can tell a, a more holistic story of what's going on on our campuses. So um, that makes it really hard to uh, be able to speak uh, to how effective certain kinds of policies or programs might be because we're not necessarily monitoring with data as much as we would like to be. So I just uh, read the the book, Getting to Diversity, um, which is about diversity programs and companies. Um, and uh, pretty similar measures came up and also pretty similar strategies. Um, it seemed like the kind of menu of things that we do um, to try to enhance diversity um, 
is pretty similar across institutions. So I wanted you to comment on, you know, how, how different are universities um, in, in this respect from other kinds of institutions? And then the other piece of it is, um, uh, it's not that there's nothing that works, but there, there seem to be in, in both cases, a lot of things that, I don't know if we know they don't work, but we, um, we have good reason to believe that they don't work, like training programs um, that, that seem to proliferate nonetheless. Um, so is that is that something that's that the universities just share with all of these other institutions and why? Yeah, that's that's a that's a really great question. And and, and the comparison between universities and other large organizations is um, interesting because they're not necessarily under the same pressures. Right. Um, so where um, if, if a university um, has DEI programs like currently. Um, and we see that, that they're highly critiqued, um, you don't see the same kinds of pressures on Fortune 500 companies for doing or not doing DEI stuff, right? And there's been a recent study um, kind of connected to the, to the work that you were just mentioning by Frank Dobbin and, and colleagues um, that companies that uh, created more uh, DEI positions and, and uh, initiatives uh, in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd and the racial justice movements of 2020, um, they've already started you know, cutting back on those uh, positions and initiatives and the employees most likely to remain in a DEI position in the company are white employees, right? So we're always, we're already seeing some of these cutbacks and, and the disproportionate effect on, on uh, employees of color in these, in these companies. Right. Um, so, you know, to your point, there's a lot, there's a lot of things that we know can work, but, are they given the resources and the support to to work? Um, what are the the positions of uh, you know the the administrators on university campuses, the the uh, uh, leaders in these companies to these kinds of programs um, and and initiatives and, and positions? Um, you know, such that people aren't being tokenized because we have increased diversity to a certain extent, but we haven't actually changed all the policies to be more inclusive and supportive, right? Um, there's a lot of different components that sometimes we look for representation and we measure that as, as what we were talking about earlier, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything in the organization has changed to be supportive so that we can reach towards more equitable results down the down the line beyond just representation and composition. So it's it, it's not just a university thing. It's not just a corporate thing. It's an everybody thing, if we will. So as you mentioned, some of these um, uh, DEI efforts um, appear to be alternatives uh, to affirmative action or even workarounds to anti-affirmative action uh, mm -hmm. policies. Um, does that affect um, whether and, and how they they work? Um, and is there a case that these have, even in places where they're not explicitly banned, um, become kind of alternatives uh, to more direct action to say, um, you know, increase the number of uh, Black and Hispanic professors? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's easy to see how uh, in in the current political context and just kind of the trajectory we've that, that have led us to this kind of uh, situation that we've um, almost used diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives as uh, a workaround for 
what uh, race conscious admissions and affirmative action hiring were supposed to be about originally, right? They've changed a lot through different kinds of uh, legal cases at the Supreme Court level and, and appeals court levels. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that um, is really important to kind of keep in mind, even if a campus is diverse, it doesn't make it racism free, right? So the DEI efforts aren't necessarily a substitute, they're a necessity on to other access initiatives that race conscious admissions and affirmative action and hiring are supposed to be about. So there's the access, then there's the equity and inclusion in the experience once people are on campus that need to be addressed you know, simultaneously and, and we can't just do the either or. Um, and, and that, um, you know, that, that really uh, uh, has been a, a, a faulty kind of uh, set of beliefs by a lot of people, not just, you know, outside of higher education, but within, right? That if we only have so much money, we need to be doing certain things and not realizing that it's not just about the money. There's a lot of different commitments and a lot of different kinds of efforts that need to be made uh, holistically um, that just can't be targeted on one one area or another. There's, unfortunately, it's a lot of different aspects of how organizations work from policies and practices, trainings, as we were mentioning, um, and what those trainings entail instead of being one-offs, um, how do you work with hiring committees to subvert biases in faculty hiring processes and, and reviews, right? Um, how do we get uh, how do we get around um, the, the the obstacles, uh, whether they're individual or organizational, to be more inclusive spaces and places uh, for learning and working? Um, that's a lot of work, right? We've seen since 1990, um, for example, that even in states that do not have affirmative action bans, Ellen Berry and, and Dan Hirschman have found that uh, less selective institutions, the ones that, uh, and, and public institutions, the ones that most people will attend college uh, at, have cut back the most, uh, being uh, the most considering uh, race conscious or utilizing race conscious admissions policies. So the ones that are already the most open are the ones that have stepped back on these things, not the most. Uh, exclusive and 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 uh, well resourced ones, but the ones that have uh, been the most open have already stepped back from these race conscious policies, um, and they're still kind of working in these environments where DEI is is really important um, on their campuses, um, but they've already kind of stepped back regardless of what the the state policy context is right um, on these things. So there's again there's a lot of nuances there um, that you know, people have to work with that. It's not either or that you need access issues and you need success issues that span the entire life course of somebody going to study or work at an institution. So I guess I'll play a little bit more devil's advocate on this. So there, <laughs> there does seem to be a potential meeting of the minds in um, some of the, the left and right critiques of this effort, um, which is, you know, on the, on the left, we say, well, you're, you're doing the easy stuff and maybe citing, mm -hmm. you know, doing something where you can have everybody go to a training and put something on your website, establish a new office, but look at your progress or lack thereof in actually, you know, diversifying your faculty or top leadership positions. And then on the right, you know, some, I guess, expressed in a, in sometimes expressed in similar terms is that this is, you know, not actually about achieving a particular end of diversity. This is about getting everybody to kind of parrot the same rhetoric um, mm -hmm. rather than kind of actually achieve that 
uh, end. So is there any danger to kind of uh, pursuing a lot of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in name um, and getting, you know, pretty poor results? Absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're not committed fully to these things, you're almost always going to fail. And and I think that's something that's really important uh, for university administrators and the public, uh, you know, at large to to consider. Like, if you don't go 100 percent at, at these things, um, how much progress you're going to make is probably going to be pretty minimal. Um, and in some cases, depending on how things are set up, you could actually do more damage because you haven't thought through all these different issues, right? Um, this is, this is part of what is also really hard about measuring progress is, um, we, we think about equity, we think about inclusion as like goals, as benchmarks and not as processes, that we're always going to have to work on these things because things always change. Um, and that's really challenging for people who are just like, have we done it yet or not? Have we succeeded or not? Um, and as much as I would like to say, yeah, I'm with you. We've succeeded on these things. It doesn't, it doesn't actually mean that something else hasn't changed that we need to be attentive to in, in these same conversations. Um, obstruction is a big thing. Right. If we know that uh, we need certain kinds of resources to support students or faculty, um, those and 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 you don't get those, then obviously you're going to be curtailing results that you're wanting. Right. Um, there's also a, a very dangerous kind of game that's played that because we know that in general that the deck, if you will, is kind of stacked up against diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts um, in, in higher education and organizations kind of as a whole, um, that it could reinforce racially essentialist and biologically determinist beliefs about different communities, right? Like we already see how people have talked about affirmative action as we want qualified applicants, as if people taking into uh, consideration the fullest extent of the human experience and that people are still attacked and excluded from different opportunities and yet are still succeeding, that those experiences aren't important to kind of take into account um, by, by saying, well, that's, you know, we want qualified applicants. You're also saying that uh, you really don't care about people, right? That you're, you're not really wanting to think about these things, that you're, you view people as incapable, right? Or unworthy. And this has come up again and again around affirmative action and DEI. So the, the latest wave that we're seeing is just yet another one that we've always had about opening up higher education and opportunity um, for those who have always been or have mostly been excluded in different eras, right? Um, so, yeah, there can be a lot of issues um, for not fulfilling certain kinds of benchmarks or desired outcomes. But we also have to say, what did people have to begin with? And also when we measure progress, we could say, well, look how diverse our campus is in the year 2023. Back in 1922, you know, 100 years ago, it wasn't like that. And it's like, do you understand the context of what 1922 or 23 actually was? Like, do you understand how of a how much of a bad comparison 100 years, like beginning to end really is? politically, uh, you know, resource-wise, like there's so many things that are different, but we make these really bad comparisons um, to try to set things up as saying, well, we've made a lot of progress when really it's a relative kind of comparison that's being made to discount how much more work is, is needed 
to to achieve some of these goals that we're setting out for higher education. So this uh, was not getting a ton of political uh, attention um, a few years ago, but um, now it seems to be uh, potentially at the very top of the political agenda, especially for the 2024 presidential race. Um, And um, very publicly, the governors of Florida uh, and Texas have taken on um, these initiatives um, and not sort of left it at that, not only proposed kind of banning these initiatives, but um, used it as a foray into university um, decision-making more broadly, including tenure and faculty hiring decisions. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, why is this coming now? Um, did we see it coming? Um, and is this uh, sort of the, where the future is, is headed, a, a polarized discussion where DEI is kind of at the, at the center of conservative complaints about universities? So the... Again, the short answer is, yeah, we, we kind of saw this coming for a while. We've seen this in cyclical waves, uh, the retrenchment in the 1970s after uh, the peak of the civil rights of black power movement that led to the establishment of, you know, uh, of black studies programs, for example, of affirmative action. Uh, we saw this in the 80s again with literally trying to get rid of the Department of Education and, and we see, poli- you know, uh, policy or bills being thrown out uh, by state legislators like in Kentucky saying we need to get rid of the Department of Ed. We saw this in the 90s with um, that wave of the culture wars around multiculturalism. We saw this immediately following the election of, uh, uh, of Barack Obama to the presidency, right? So we've seen these almost every decade following the civil rights movement. Uh, peak in the, in the 50s and 60s. As you mentioned, a lot of this is wholly for political gain by some of these politicians. We went on to discuss how conservative complaints about diversity, equity, and inclusion quickly became core debates about how universities should be governed. So you uh, have portrayed this as uh, mostly a kind of a perennial uh, set of complaints and uh, or a cyclical one. Um, but it does seem like there's been a big shift, at least in the, the state higher education politics, where mm-hmm. um, I think I read there was a book, some sort of review book that was published like 10 or 15 years apart. And it basically was the same stuff. You know, it's funding mm-hmm. and accountability regimes, it's access, it's uh, is there a way to judge student performance and reward schools. And that really seems to have been supplanted, at least in partisan politics, by um, these debates now surrounding DEI, but also moving to kind of who should govern universities very quickly. So I guess, yeah, what is new about the latest turn? Yeah, I, you know, the, as much as it's cyclical, what's happened is we've seen steady rollback of certain kinds of components. It's not just like people are, you know, you know, rattling sabers and then walk away. Like there's actually been a lot of retrenchment and, and uh, regression you know, away from some of these kinds of efforts. And what we're seeing with the targeting of tenure, right? Um, For example, that's really um, not just concerning. I mean, obviously it is, but it's the ability to control the narrative and and education in a way that we haven't seen, right? That um, we've, we've always had this kind of complaint about professors as being disconnected in some way from the everyday life outside of a college campus. Um, But not so much that people would literally say, well, we're going to review you 
and we're going to say whether you should have a job or not. We haven't seen states step in and go that full blown around a topic of conversation um, the way it has uh, recently, like you were saying with with Florida, like not being able, you know, part of the, the, the policies that have been proposed are um, preventing uh, faculty from getting grants to study things like racial inequality. Now you're actually messing with federal funding from the National Science Foundation, from the National Institutes of Health to study racial health disparities, for example. Um, literally not being able to understand how uh, a university could better support all the constituents in a state by doing research and having uh, analyses that could support literally the health and well-being of people. Um, that's pretty dangerous, right? You're literally talking about people's lives here and the ability for higher education to be part of the public good and contribute to people's lives, even if they're not being educated on campus, but they can help figure out how to make a community better, right? And be part of that solution process. Um, so again, these policies are, are much deeper and, and as much as we say, well, we've heard this before, we haven't seen them attack like this towards different core components of how higher education functions, as you're mentioning, how it's governed. We've seen a lot of different things in North Carolina, for example, and other states where governors will just completely, Republican governors will completely rip out and put in new uh, uh, supporters of their policies on boards of trustees um, that will uh, you know, circumvent faculty governance and, and, and shared governance policies, right? We'll see them close down centers, right? One of the first centers um, earlier in, in the 21st century to get closed down was a civil rights center at the University of North Carolina that was providing free legal advice for communities and, and for uh, people who were needing it. Right, saying that 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 was actually outside of the mission of the university. Um, so again, how these things are kind of being spun and then leveraged to attack um, some of the core features of higher education is quite concerning. Um, and it's also a way of controlling not just the narrative but the ability to change um, uh, to be you know change democracy to be more inclusive to acknowledge the different points of views to be able to be more supportive. Um, they're seeing higher education as one of the mechanisms that is obstructing them from having the power that they want, and that's a very you know we've we've heard this this um, this terminology used often you know over the last several years, but it's very authoritarian. It's very fascist, and there's been a study that. Uh, came out of uh, the Center uh, for the Study of Education and the Workforce at Georgetown that pointed out that one of the best ways to fight authoritarian views is to provide more education beyond high school for people to think about the world around them. So it's not just that um, that it will help with employment. It will help with understanding what dangerous ideas are and how that could impact communities, right? That that's one of the biggest things that we've seen in other authoritarian states is that targeting higher education is, is important because it allows them to control the narrative and the power structure that they want to hold on to and prevent people from being able to challenge that. Um, and for some people that they would say, well, that's pretty alarmist of you, Carson. And I'm like, well, we're in an alarming time. Are conservative politicians just representing real public opinion? 
and what can we learn about the debate over racial issues in K-12 education. Jonathan Collins argues that the public supports most teaching about race, but opposition has been successfully mobilized around fear of critical race theory. So your new paper uh, enters this uh, heated discussion over teaching critical race theory, uh, arguing that uh, they only hate the term, that this is really about just that term rather uh, than the teaching of the content. So what's the evidence for that? And is this really just about what we call it? Well, you know, that's a great question. So the, the paper is kind of a bit of a, maybe perhaps a bit of an oversell of what's happening here. Um, but, well, the title in and of itself is probably a little bit of an oversell. But what was happening was, um, you know, I started doing these national um, surveys, trying to get a sense of, you know, how people were feeling about some of the most hot button education policy issues. And this was uh, starting back in 2020. And I wanted to know, like, you know, I'm, I'm an ed policy scholar. I want to know how the public feels about some of the leading education policy issues. And at the time, uh, anti-racist teaching was starting to enter the public sphere, the national conversation. Um, Ibram X. Kendi had released um, his book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, the George Floyd protests had happened and the conversation on um, anti-racism and anti-Black racism had become uh, one of the leading national issues. Um, and so... I was curious about how people were digesting some of the leading education policy issues with this as the with with this as the backdrop, and so um, literally one of the last questions I kind of ended up throwing onto the survey was this question about whether or not people support anti-racist teaching, because again this is 2020 it seemed like okay like there's some conversation happening around this um, people start people seem to be starting to form preferences around this. Um, at least that's what I'm seeing from the media and social media. And so um, I asked this question about anti-racist teaching and if people support the idea of um, teaching about the history of um, uh, the history of uh, race in America in the schools. And I get the results back and it's pretty strong support, like over 80 percent support from the respondents. And I'm like, huh, like it, it seems like this is much more of a polarized debate uh again nationally in like the media and the social media but then i'm looking at these um survey results and they seem to suggest that there's relative uniform uh support and so i do a replication i, I feel it again in 2021 a few months later and i get virtually the same results and again one of the things that i also did was i embedded a, an experimental component to this so i thought well like if there's something that is um influencing support or opposition here, it might be parental consent. So I thought people would be opposed, especially white parents would be opposed to the idea of um, anti-racist teaching in the schools with, taught without parental consent. And so half of the participants were randomly assigned this additional language that anti-racist teaching would be happening without parental consent. Even with this additional language, you know, it no results. We, you still saw pretty, I still saw really strong support uh, for anti-racist teaching. And then <laughs> I got a direct message. So um, one of the survey respondents, while taking the 2021 version, sends me this a message and says, hey, I don't have a problem with anti-racism or teaching about the history of race. 
what I don't support is this critical race theory stuff. And then a light bulb went out. <laughs> and so I, I ran another replication and the, the treatment this time was literally the same question, but with just the term critical race theory added into the text. And then suddenly I started to see um, pretty major differences in support or opposition for anti-racist teaching. And so like that becomes the, the sort of underscore of the title of the paper, which is they only hate the term because when the term critical race theory is literally just added um, into um, this sentence about supporting anti-racist teaching, um, then the support for um, anti-racist teaching declines significantly. So one reading of that is that it's about the, the term itself. Um, one other potential divider, though, is uh, what, are we teaching history and it's a contemporary influence? Or are we teaching something that's about kind of current policy and politics? And so critical race theory might um, kind of bring that to mind for people in a way that teaching about slavery and discrimination as history uh, does not. So what do, you, what do you think about that divide? Is this about history versus current politics and policy or about this particular theory? So I think it's an open question and it's debatable, right? So what do I think is happening? Uh, I think that there's been this politicization around the term and that politicization is filtering into what I'm finding in my results. Uh, and the thing that gives me even more confidence in believing this is when you look at some of the, uh, some of the other um, public opinion polling that has been done around uh, critical race theory, especially over the last year plus, the consistent thing thing that people seem to be finding is that there are still a lot of people who don't know what critical race theory is. Uh, I think it was, um, you know, UMass put out a, uh, did a poll and they found that like close to 40% of the respondents who they asked about critical race theory said that they didn't know, they weren't familiar with it. Um, Ed Week has an article where they looked at um, exit polls from uh, some of the elections that were happening in 2021, and they were finding similar things. There, there was a sizable, if not majority, of uh, the survey respondents were saying that they were very that they were somewhat unfamiliar with the term critical race theory. And so, I think for it to have this interpretation of being about current politics, there would have to be more knowledge and therefore salience around it. And so, and we're just not really seeing strong evidence of that. Um, and what we're, what we are seeing though, it, are these very strong partisan differences. And so, um, even in the Amherst poll, I think it was a slightly more than 50% of Republicans, um, opposed, uh, critical race theory, the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And it was like less than 25%, I believe. Uh, for Democrats, you know, in my study, I find a similar gap, about 30 percentage point difference between uh, Republicans uh, and the and the the rate and the average uh, from um, just framing this idea of critical race theory or just introducing the term um, into the conversation. And so I think it's possible uh, amongst that this um, a minority of folks on the right who are thinking about this thinking about critical race theory as a current phenomenon. But I think what we're seeing from a modal standpoint are just people who don't really have clear knowledge of like what it is, solidify preferences around it. And therefore I think they're tapping into to a partisanship and ideology. So you also asked some other questions on the survey um, and you're able to relate those uh, to 
uh, your views of teaching uh, about race and history and critical race theory, and you find uh, that views of uh, protest, both the Black Lives Matter protests and the January 6th uh, insurrection were related to these views. So what, what do you make of those connections? Well, I think it further uh, strengthens the case that this is a part of a, um, of a political construct or this is co politically constructed. And so what I'm seeing in the data, of course, is that the folks who are opposing um, anti-racist teaching and the folks who, with or without the term critical race theory attached, uh, were folks who were in strong opposition to the George Floyd protests in 2020, and then who were in strong support of the January 6th insurrection. And so, you know, on the surface, there's nothing that really ties these together. You know, anti-racist teaching, um, the 2020 protests, now you could argue clearly like the, there's a, that racial politics connects these two, but from a, from a policy standpoint, you know, they're not trying to achieve similar goals. You know, one is about, you know, you could argue that the George Floyd protests were more so about like policing as a policy issue than education reform. And meanwhile, when you look at anti-racist teaching, this was obviously about like social studies and civics uh, curriculum reform. And then when you look at the January 6th insurrection, this was about a, a uh, an immediate and threatening attack on American democracy. You know, so again, what ties these together is this connection around racial politics. And so um, I think the only thing that seems to make sense here is that there is a um, pretty um, calculated political um, movement happening on the right um, around around anti-black racism that connects these, that essentially connects this triangle. And I think the, I think that's pretty much the only way to explain um, these pretty strong uh, correlations that I'm finding uh, in the data. And again, across multiple iterations uh, of the survey. So you also um, note uh, the development of the sort of culture war surrounding uh, these issues uh, in the paper. Uh, and I was struck that um, a lot of the references weren't to necessarily things happening in classrooms. They were to, um, you know, popular nonfiction books, to the New York Times 1619 project. Um, so I guess to what extent, yeah, was this um, kind of an educational controversy that bubbled up? And to what extent is this sort of a sort of a culture war journalism conversation um, that, that got kind of put onto the education reform debate? I definitely think it was more of the latter. You know, when I, when I talk with journalists, you know, one of the big questions that they pose, and I think that we're starting to internally debate is, when did the culture war start? You know, what was the tipping point? And I go back to the... Um, to President Trump, former President Trump's uh, Patriot Education Commission. Um, and this seemed to be the moment where the, uh, the Trump administration and therefore the Republican Party found something, found this thing that they were throwing, in the, that they were throwing at the wall and were able to make it stick. Um, the commission in and of itself did nothing from a policy standpoint. Um, it existed pre uh, pretty much primarily through Trump's um, executive authority. And it just brought some conservatives together to have these conversations around what patriot education looks like. And the commission 
pretty much died immediately upon the transition from Trump to Biden. Um, but what it did do is create um, an issue area that Republicans have since really staked out as a potential area for political mobilization. And so um, I think is I think the bigger question is why? Why has this been an area that is so fruitful, at least in theory? And you could argue in practice too, there have been some um, some successful school board elections and even you know people debate the effect the impact of the culture war on Glenn Youngkin's race in Virginia, which I talk about in the paper. And to the extent that it's been successful, well, why so? And I think the thing that education does for um, political opportunists is it taps into two things, Um, kids, which we all care about, uh, and two, uh, morals and values. And so the culture war has become a way to have a more clandestine debate uh, around, or really a, a more clandestine attempt at smearing the uh, moral apparatus of the opposing party. And so you'll notice that the debates are never really about what's happening in schools per se. It's using the idea of something that could be theoretically happening in schools, but really to create more um, fear mongering around this idea of what is assumed to be or what could be potentially happening in schools. I mean, if you go back and you read HB7 that DeSantis signs into law in Florida, the word critical race theory is never mentioned. And it's all, the, the entire bill is all about um, preventing the um, mandatory discussion around race or the mandatory discussion around making someone feel uncomfortable because of race or um, any kind of training or um, teaching that places a racial group on a moral high ground. I mean, these, if you think that K through 12 schools are these places where kids are being proselytized um, into thinking that um, white kids are all um, these evil, immoral people, then you haven't really been into a K through 12 school, at least any of the K through 12 schools that many of the education policy scholars that I know um, have, have been working in for years. And a lot of the teachers that I know have been working in, in for years. And so like, who is this language for? You know, this language is for, um, you know, people who are more involved on in the politics than the education. So I'll play devil's advocate for a little bit and make the counter case and you can respond <laughs> that um, that maybe that, that people are responding um, to a real set of changes here. Maybe the, mm-hmm. the George Floyd protests happened at a time uh, when people were paying more attention to school boards uh, because of, of COVID, um, more attention to what was happening in their classroom. Uh, there were teachers and administrators that were sympathetic uh, to the Floyd protests and, and trying to bring in some uh, new curriculum or at least some updates uh, to, to what they were talking about. And so they may not have been responding to critical race theory per se, uh, but they were responding to kind of liberalizing trends in uh, what's taught in schools uh, around race. You, you think that was, wasn't happening? Well, if it, if it, even if it was happening, the question is, well, why now? Because you can make the argument that these same things were happening before 2020. It, you know, you, um, you could actually make the argument that we've seen, um, we've seen almost kind of like a, a re, like a retreat or a digression in how teachers are teaching about these concepts in schools 
sort of post 2020. I mean, think about it. <laughs> we, from the education policy perspective, the biggest conversation that we were having at the time was about learning loss. You had kids that weren't even in schools. You had kids that were um, trying to do some form of remote learning, kids that were trying to attend school virtually using a parent's cell phone. And so you mean to tell me at this moment where we're trying to figure out how to get ventilators in, in classrooms, where we're trying to figure out how to like even reopen schools and reopen schools safely. And we're trying, and we're also experiencing major losses in the teacher workforce. While this is happening, it, there's also been this rapid increase in the this like hyper liberalization of the curriculum in K through twelve schools. I find those two hard to sort of be happening hand in hand. I mean, again, it, it's possible, but there's nothing about this particular moment that suggests there would be any kind of like uptick. The only uptick we saw was the public conversation, people having conversations in the media and in social media about being an anti-racist. I think schools were, fi were, were fumbling with uh, fundamentally different problems. The question is, well, where is it stemming from? And there's nothing that if, if it's stemming from the, the, the hyper liberal uh, enclaves that are training teachers, teachers have been getting trained in these liberal enclaves for decades. Again, this, was George Floyd's murder and then the accompanying protest that much of a trigger that completely um, that hyper liberalized spaces that were already considered extremely liberal? I mean, maybe. I mean, it's possible. We did see uh, changes in national discourse. We saw changes in the ways that um, businesses were operating, their attentiveness to the, to, to ideas of racism and putting forth um, anti-racism initiatives, like if you know if um, if corporate uh, businesses can change, I guess there is reason to think that we could see um, things reach another level in schools and curriculum design and um, teaching strategies. So it's not far it's not far fetched. It's not necessarily um, unfathomable, but um, you know, the idea that it was the idea that it was something that was specifically happening in 2020 and then and beyond and around that moment. Again, like it's hard to reconcile with what had been uh, it's hard to uh, accept the idea that what happened, what started happening in 2021 and 2022 was radically different than what was happening in 2019 and 2018. The only thing that seemed to be different was the national conversation that seemed to be radically different. And especially how. Um, Republicans were viewing um, education and spe specifically social studies and it's attached and this idea of attaching race to it as this viable political strategy. So conservatives uh, critiques of uh, racial teaching um, have also uh, ramped up in universities um, to the uh, extent that uh, several states are either trying to change tenure uh, or trying to change faculty control of hiring. Uh, and there's a couple potential connections um, here with the K through 12 debates. One is the kind of mechanical one that you mentioned that teachers are taught in universities. Uh, and so conservatives believe that that might be the source of their uh, liberal ideas about teaching race that they take into schools. And another is just simply that the debate uh, that's taking place in K through 12 uh, could be easily sort of transported uh, to, to universities. So how, how do you see, I guess, the connection between these debates in K through 12 and in universities? 
Well, you know, the the attack on the universities is nothing new. I mean, we've been seeing these affirmative action debates happening at, at the higher education level for quite some time. And it's hard to see um, the culture war um, sort of um, relationship with higher education as detached from these debates around affirmative action, place of race, and considering um, undergraduate admissions or graduate admissions. Um, you know, so, you know, this is, this is not, you know, this is relatively familiar territory. I think the thing that makes the higher education uh, question so interesting is because of um, the distinction between public and private institutions and the real power that these laws can have over what's happening um, at public institutions irrespective, uh, in comparison to private institutions, right? And so, you know, there's a, that's the difference, that's a, that's a different kind of in, encroachment that, for instance, that you face than, not, than what I face, right? You're at a public institution. And so like state laws can heavily dictate, um, if, they if they decide to encroach, they can dictate what, you, what, what, you, what you're teaching in the classroom. And I have a little bit more, I'm inoculated a little bit more, um, you know, from that potential fear. And so, you know, I think if you, if you go back to DeSantis's bill, one of the interesting things that nobody was really talking about until they started to create a, their, their own university was the fact that the law was K through, I think the law was, was it K through 14 as opposed to being K through 12. So they already had ideas uh, of this being something that uh, tracks into higher ed. There's only one other state that I've seen that had a higher education built into their um, version of that bill, and that was Wisconsin. Um, and so uh, it raises questions as to whether more states will uh, start to see uh, an influx of bills that attack the culture war through the higher education system. But so far, I mean, again, we see the conversation happening in Florida. Outside of Florida and Wisconsin, there isn't much policy momentum. So you mentioned that uh, the, this uh, tracks on to um, longer debates about affirmative action in, in universities. Um, and conservatives um, say that uh, that universities are basically trying to find a way around um, bans on affirmative action or norms against affirmative action. Uh, but there's also a liberal critique of um, these activities in universities that says, uh, well, something really did change. What changed is that we stopped trying to uh, achieve actual um, representation among faculty and, and students, and, and we got training programs uh, and, um, you know, academic segregated areas uh, instead uh, of, of achieving racial equality. Do you, what do you make of that critique? I, I think about it. Um, I think about it in this way. Um, so I think the critique comes from this idea uh, that we see in the language from the most recent uh, ruling on affirmative action, it raises this question of like, when? When is it considered um, viable? Uh, wh what is the viable period at which we can assume that like race will no longer be needed um, in these decisions? Like how much longer will it be? I think the last legal precedent was like 25 years. After 25 years, which actually is, uh, I think ironically in another th four years, 
um, will we be at this point where race-based admissions um, um, should no longer be needed to spur racial and ethnic diversity on college on college and university campuses? Now, we're already gearing up for a, I think, a big political movement around the idea that we are not. I think we can look at the demographics of a lot of colleges and universities and still say like that we have a lot of work to do there. And there are real questions as to whether um, colleges and universities will do that work on their own without some kind of, um, not necessarily a legal push, but at least like without a legal barricade. Uh, and so, um, but it's interesting too, because it ties more squarely to the structure of the anti-CRT laws, even more than it ties to um, the politics around the um, anti-CRT uh, quote unquote movement. Because it's all been about um, removing race from consideration in these things, removing race from considering admissions, removing race from considering any kind of moral superiority, removing race from thinking about um, um, uh, from uh, race and identity from um, a, the center of how students are being taught and um, acknowledging uh, no uh, history as superior uh, to one uh, to uh, another groups. So I think the count the the if the quote unquote devil's advocate argument to this is like well yeah we should get to this point where we can have discussions. Um, with kind of like racial pluralism without the need to have these um, these barriers in place. But we haven't seen clear evidence that when the barriers are removed, that um, we do see that in practice, that we see whether it's universities engaging in admissions practices that create a diverse student body or um, social studies and civics courses that will um, substantively center the perspectives and the voices of kids of color and kids from more marginalized racial and ethnic backgrounds. So the response uh, to uh, the the CRT bills in uh, K through 12 was a little bit bifurcated in that some people were saying this isn't taught, um, which, you know, was accurate in thinking about CRT in a you know, particular theory, um, but also saying we need to teach about uh, racial history, um, and uh, th there's a those weren't in contradiction, <laughs> but they were sort of two two different ways of of, uh, of responding. And it seems like the similar kinds of things uh, might be happening in higher ed, but we might veer a little bit more toward toward the latter. Um, is there anything that uh, the high, higher ed folks can learn from the way that this debate has been played out in K through twelve? Well, a couple of things. I think one they can learn, and this is the thing that doesn't get talk, get spoken about enough, I think, uh, which is this idea that um, you can play offense and defense. I think, you know, the the K through 12 debate has really been framed as this culture war in which um, folks on the right have been ramming these uh, anti-CRT anti bills through state legislatures and pretty much dominating the curriculum reform um, uh, policy space. And that's not really true. We've seen a, a lot of, um, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, representatives on the left at the state level pushing through bills that are trying to counteract this. And um, 
and I think the at the K, at the K through twelve level, I mean at the higher ed level, you you kind of have to learn the same lesson in that um, what we're seeing is that uh, race and school reform, especially around these cultural war related topics, is becoming more of a contact sport. And so if there if there are bills on the table to place constraints on the ability to teach and talk about race at the higher education level, then you need to be thinking about what bills uh, at the state level look like to counteract this. I mean, but so, but this is all new territory because if the, the funny thing about this whole thing is that like, you know, now we're talking about curriculum reform around civics and social studies as this hot button contact sport um, that's dominating the education policy reform debate. And, you know, 10 years ago, we were, all we cared about was charters versus uh, public schools, traditional public schools. And it's like, well, how did we get here? And, you know, again, I've been arguing that I think we got here through this like politicization. And you could argue too, that we got here through the nationalization of local politics where these big, um, where the, the national parties have been trying to find uh, ways to connect to the local level and vice versa. I have like local candidates and like local political organizations and groups have been trying to attach themselves um, to national structures. And so if this is the trend that um, education reform is moving in and we've seen K through 12 get engulfed by this, I think higher education should be on the lookout and, under and understand that they could be next. And again, the best thing to think about is um, not just playing defense, but also playing offense as well. So g given that, um, you know, you, you cover the research on, on these areas as well. So, I mean, normatively speaking, you know, what, what is the right approach to uh, teaching about uh, race in, in schools? Um, and to what extent should um, teachers and administrators be considering kind of community opinion in where they, they live or the difference between um, the political views or racial views of the, the teachers in the schools uh, and the community that surrounds them? It's an interesting question because it's become so, um, it's become so uh, polarizing and contentious to kind of entertain as a question. But when you go back and you read like Gloria Ladson Billings and some of the ed policy scholars who are first writing about culturally relevant teaching and critical race theory as something that could be applied to um, teaching and instruction, they always retreat back to this very simple idea that um, culturally relevant teaching is just good teaching. And so, it, you know, it's really just this idea that we would teach and not just social studies and civics, but math, science, language in ways that tap into or resonate with the everyday lived experience of students. And especially as our schools become more and more diverse, then the teaching strategies that tap into lived experience should reflect this emerging diversity. Um, how this turned into, um, you know, whether or not, you know, what, how this turned into um, this idea that schools were spewing um, this notion of white supremacy um, through uh, the halls, you know, this to me feels like an exaggeration. What it's really about is making the classroom space feel at home or feel like a space that's conducive for learning, regardless of your your background. And the thing is, if you're a black kid, 
um, going to public schools in the U.S., it's been much harder than it should be to see yourself um, in the curriculum. And I think it we do need to make efforts to make sure that especially black kids can see themselves um, in in the curriculum that we teach, that they can see themselves in this idea of being um, uh, contributors to knowledge around mathematics, science, technology, uh, language arts, writing, you know, chemistry, physics, you know, like, you know, the curriculum should really sort of fit the image of like what we see in our school systems. And especially when you're talking about K through 12 public schools, where um, the majority of K through 12 schools or the majority of the students in K through 12 schools in America are now kids of color. And so if the majority of the kids in the schools are students of color, it shouldn't be controversial to ensure that, you know, um, the teaching that happens in those schools centers the experiences that they live on the everyday. So a lot of your other work um, actually intervenes in the schools um, and attempts uh, to, to wrestle with these conversations about uh, actually getting uh, students uh, and others involved in trying to make some decisions for their own uh, school system. Um, relate that, if you can, to, to these kinds of debates. To what extent is um, are these kinds of culture war debates um, filtering into how you're perceived uh, uh, coming from Brown University to these school uh, systems, um, but also, um, you know, what 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 do students want to be involved in in terms of decision making at, at their schools? Is it this curriculum or is it uh, more of the, the kind of resource allocation questions? Well, it's interesting because I think the work that I've been doing in schools um, has really reinforced the idea that the the public debate around the culture wars and critical race theory and anti-racist teaching is just far removed from the experiences of kids in schools. Um, you know, if you go into a school, the last thing that people are talking about is critical race theory. And I'm talking about going into, you know, quote unquote, inner city schools, um, urban schools, um, you know, whatever, um, you know, description that you want to have of schools that mostly uh, educate black and brown students. The last thing that people are really talking about are, um, you know, these kinds of ideas. And when we, we're talking about, you know, th these are kids. They want a school, they want an educational experience um, <laughs> that, you know, essentially just kind of works for them on their terms. They want, um, whether it's better facilities uh, or, um, you know, ways to make uh, learning math and science easier. And that's essentially like what's been happening in my work. Like when I, I guess my concern with the education policy reform debate kind of fits in the middle. You know, I think, you know, the big concern from the culture war perspective has, has become, you know, whether or not and how we teach kids about race in schools. And I think that's a big concern. Um, but I think before that was the concern, it was about, well, what kind of hot button reform can we pull off the shelf, drop in schools and, and lead to changes in student performance? And it was about, well, could it be a technology thing or could it be some kind of programmatic intervention? Or like, you know, what can we do to increase literacy rates and help students learn math better? And, you know, for me, the question, the answer to that question, potential answer to that question, I would say, is democracy and really thinking about, well, these kids are here every day. How can we tap into their voices and get a clear understanding of what they think could be used to facilitate school improvement? And if that school improvement 
could essentially be bottom up that like kids could um, learn math better in, in, in schools that ask students how they can learn math better and design processes to where we can tap into their collective voices and then therefore facilitate this kind of school improvement. And so um, I'm hoping that this work can kind of bubble up because it goes back to how I see the critical race theory debate and kind of the I, the kind of upshot of the paper, which is that like this stuff has really become a distraction. Um, when we're talking about uh, when state legislatures are passing bills about um, or these kind of anti-CRT bills or even when, you know, legislatures are passing bills to counteract that, you're taking away legislative energy and activity that could be used to improve the conditions for kids in schools and to help to ensure that they have uh, some of the tools that they need to do better in the primary academic subjects that will set them up for um, a fruitful uh, career and, and a certain quality of life. We aren't having that conversation anymore. And that's one of the biggest, um, that's one of the biggest, I'd say, frustrations that I have with this current education policy moment. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I recommend checking out these episodes next, all linked on our website. Higher Education, an Engine of Social Mobility or a Driver of Inequality, The Politics of School from Home, Racial Protest, Violence, and Backlash, How Politics Changes Our Racial Views and Identities, and How Misperceptions and Online Norms Drive Cancel Culture. Thanks to Jonathan Collins and Carson Bird for joining me. Please check out They Only Hate the Term and Behind the Diversity Number, and then listen in next time.